from Austin, Texas. I'm Christopher Schmidt. On today's show, we talk with Lainey Feingold, a disability rights lawyer who has worked with Target, CVS, Major League Baseball, Walmart, and many organizations in representing disabled people seeking full participation in all society has to offer. She is the author of Structured Negotiation, a book published by the American Bar Association that explores an alternative dispute resolution process other than mediation or lawsuits for disputed claims. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. Make plans for CSS DevConf 2017. Join Chris Coyer, Wes Boss, Mina Markham, Harry Roberts, Sarah Drasner, and many, many more in New Orleans this October. Early bird tickets are on sale now at cssdevconf.com. The UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by me. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com and have the best links of the week sent to your email box. Also, speaking of your inbox, set it and forget it with the Non-Breaking Space Show Newsletter. Whenever a new show is ready, be notified right away by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. You can find show notes and links discussed in today's episode at nonbreakingspace.tv. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Telject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, if you like the show, please let others know to search for us on iTunes at Non-Breaking Space Show. Now, on with the show. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time out and uh, being, being on the show. I really appreciate it. So, um, so I've, I'm not a lawyer, so first up. So, uh, so, but forget it. I'm hanging up the phone. <laughs> I know, right? I, sh- I should have, should have, like ended with that statement, not led with it. Sorry, but uh, I did try to. I did get your book, uh, structured negotiations, and so congratulations on uh, on on finishing it. I know how hard it is to write a book, so I appreciate it. Uh, can you talk about uh, what is? Well, before you even get that, uh, how did you uh, start the path to be a, a disability rights attorney? You know, that's a good question. I just was speaking to a. a group of first year law students. And in my slide deck, I showed a road sign with a twisty turvy and an arrow. <laughs> it was called Path to Structured Negotiation. So, yeah. you know, I got out of law school, I represented labor unions, I was in a traditional civil rights firm. And then, as I always tell the young people, I got fired from a job mm-hmm. and one door closes, another opens. And I ended up in disability rights nonprofit. And as part of that, we got calls from blind people saying, you know, the ADA passed. It was back in the mid-90s. The ADA passed, and we still can't use any ATMs. Mm -hmm. So we had, like, good lawsuits against the major banks. But instead of suing, we said, well, there's no technology yet. Maybe we should try writing a letter and seeing if they'll talk to us without a lawsuit. And they did. And that's how the whole thing started. Okay. And that's how, like, um, your book is called Structure Negotiations. And so is that... And that, that's the premise for structured negotiations. Is, sounds, is that how it, how it started from that point? Yeah, there wasn't a term called structured negotiation at the time. We were just decided, okay, well, we were afraid it was there was no technology yet. The ADA was new. You know, what would happen if we got to a judge who said, blind people can't use ATMs? Yeah. We thought, oh, maybe we should just try having a conversation. And it worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was really the most surprising thing. We dealt with Bank America, Wells Fargo, and Citibank. Mm. We wrote to them in 1995. Mm. And all three banks said, yeah, we'll talk to you. 
and we'll talk to the blind clients we were representing. And so when those cases were successful, mm-hmm. we got the first talking ATMs in the United States. We're like, oh, maybe this wasn't just luck. Maybe this was an actual thing. And we decided to name it and we called it structured negotiation. Okay, cool. And I think in the book you actually said like you actually met more often in ATM testing labs than actually the uh, the courthouses, right? We didn't go into courthouses. Yeah. We didn't have one meeting at a courthouse. We did not file lawsuits against any of those banks. Mm. Uh, we did go to the ATM testing labs, which I was glad to write about because it was all a sort of like high-tech talk secret code yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. And the blind people got to give input into the usability of the ATMs. And it was all really great. All right. Do you know what type of uh, technologies they added to ATMs at the time? Like just to make them... More accessible? Well, the main thing was speech. The main thing was speech. So when we started, the banking industry had Braille on the ATMs. But the ATMs, as you know, they're interactive machines. And so Braille didn't make them accessible. So uh, we work with Greg Vanderheiden, who um, was then at the University of Wisconsin at the Trace Center. And he helped the banks develop the talking software and tactile keypads. Although with Citibank, we did have touchscreen. Right. We did have touchscreen, first touchscreen talking ATMs. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it was mostly talking, the audio jack, volume control, all the level of detail that really makes something accessible we were working on. Right, and I do want to say like for the audience like, like who uh, probably now just accept ATMs being everywhere, that there was a period of time when banks were like giving away like prizes and food for them just to, to, to use ATMs because it's such a, like a, a crazy concept, you know, back in the time, so... But uh, but now they're like you know everywhere and people people you know accept them, but uh, back when you know dinosaurs ruled Earth you know type of thing. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it's interesting you say that because I had done research about how the banking industry got sighted people comfortable with the idea of taking money out of a machine mm-hmm. because we really wanted the banks to do training and you know that kind of thing to help blind people be comfortable. And there's a great interview that the Smithsonian did with the guy who invented the first ATM mm-hmm. about how they had to like bring people over and have cardboard mock-ups and get people comfortable with the idea. Yeah. Yeah, and then I think like I think one person actually said like they gave out like hamburger, like free hamburgers if you just try oh, the machine. That's <laughs> the way that like oh, really? I didn't know they didn't do that for blind people. I can <laughs> no, that. Yeah, I think it was like Wells Fargo. They like, like, like hey, here's a hamburger if you try it. And you're like okay, so uh, but yeah. So what other companies uh, besides like banks uh, have you have you done structured negotiation with to uh, for um, you know just to to make their their services and, and products more accessible? Well, one of the good things that happened at the end of the negotiations about ATMs, our blind clients came to us and said, you know, it's really great that you're working on ATM accessibility, but there's this new thing and it's called online banking. And if we don't make sure online banking is accessible, then we're going to be locked out again from financial privacy. So we work with Bank of America on the first web accessibility case in the United States that brought, it was at the time it was WCAG 1.0. And because we have a flexible process and we didn't have a judge saying no, the bank was very open and they have become a great negotiating partner throughout. And that started us on a path of working with big companies on web accessibility. So besides banks, we've worked with Major League Baseball and Anthem and CVS Mm -hmm. and a lot of American Cancer Society we did an agreement with. And these were all... Uh, relationships that we were able to form without filing lawsuits mm-hmm. that led to increased access. No, like, because 
is is one of the benefits of going to a structured negotiation. I would say like like you're are you afraid that a judge would would cite and say like you know in the ATM example like you know say like well technology's not here yet so therefore we don't need to worry about it just yet would would that be a worry that um from going to court case rather than doing structured negotiation? Yeah, I don't want to make it seem like we do it because we're afraid. Right, yeah. Because that's sort of like a negative back end of the thing. But when you uh, file a court case, no matter what, if you file the case or if you're defending a case, you don't have control of the case because a judge can say various things. And, you know, in the United States now, I mean, let me just say right at the outset, court cases are really important and especially now with this administration. I mean, just yesterday, judges are saving us from the Muslim ban. So court cases are really important and structured negotiation is not to say don't do court cases in particular situations. It's just on the issues of accessibility and on many, many issues where there's an opportunity for relationship, then this is a method that has really proven to be effective tool. Okay. Uh, so are there other 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 benefits, I mean, other alternatives for dispute re re resolutions besides uh, structured negotiation and, I guess, going to court that, that are out there? Yeah, well, there's mediation, okay. which is a really good process. And mediation is when you go and a third party, a mediator helps you try to resolve your claim. Mm. The problem in the United States is most people don't go to a mediator until they've spent a lot of money fighting each other. Right and creating bad relationship and creating conflict. So someone just once described structured negotiation, I have this in the book as kind of mediation without the mediator, because mm -hmm. we're trying to form direct relationships to resolve the issues. Although mediation works well with structured negotiations, because if you do get stuck, it's another alternative rather than having to file a case. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like it was structured negotiations, I think um, uh, it's, it's more positive whether than going to like a, a court, you know, going to court or even mediation, because uh, you might put the other person on defensive and they would have to actually, and there's no room to say like, well, we really want to do a common good here for, for our client, but also other people as well. And so I feel like that's, you know, more of a positive spin on it. Yeah, I think that's true. One of the things I talk about in the book is languaging. And so like when you sue someone, the words defendant and they have to defend their bad behavior, mm -hmm. we're trying to say, okay, well, we disagree on whether your behavior was bad, this or that, but we, for whatever reasons, everyone around the table wants to find a solution. Right. And so there's a lot less defensiveness and that means people can be more creative. And I mean, everyone, no matter what field you're in, you know, lawyers tend to be reactive and risk averse and uh, creativity is not a word usually associated with the profession. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So yeah. So it sounds like you know the, the language you're using uh, is is also something that can help with, and uh, I guess in other you know industries as well. It's like making sure things are more positive because you don't want to put people on the defensive. You know, like one of the things you I think I've learned is like you know you do not give people ultimatums because they will always pick the one one they always pick the one that you don't want and then two it uh, creates this divisive uh, atmosphere uh from that point on and so i feel like you know i think structured negotiation i mean it feels like it'd be applied to you know just other relationships as well you know in terms of of you know even like personal or even business and that was yeah it's funny because the process developed as a way to resolve legal claims mm -hmm. 
but I wrote the book as a real roadmap. So like, how do you write a letter to engage someone without putting them on defensive? And how do you exchange information where people aren't hiding the ball, but willing to share? And because I wrote it in that way, you know, as a roadmap, people have told me since I wrote it, oh, yeah, this is really useful for, you know, working in a team where people have different views or different kinds of legal issues. So like Whitney Quisenberry is a usability expert. She did a review in usability uh, UXPA magazine about how it's a really useful tools. Like we convinced Bank America or Walmart we've worked with, you know, really big companies. How are we able to do that? There's a lot of the tools in the book, I think, can be applied in a lot of different situations. Right. I mean, and you, you talked about, like, you know, Walmart example, uh, Major League Baseball, uh, Anthem. So if it's like, how do you first uh, approach, you know, these businesses and say, like, um, we, we have an issue? And uh, I guess even before then, like, how, how do you uh, do clients come to you first and then say, like, we have an issue and then go out there? I guess, I guess that's what would happen, right? It's like you first you get, you have to get uh, someone who has an issue with, like, I guess major league baseball, right? And then you can go and and do you just write to them and say, hey, like, and who do you write to? I guess is is, is my yeah. Opinion. I mean, those are good questions. First off, all the cases start with people. Mm-hmm. You know, in my book I call them clients, and in tech people call them users. Mm-hmm. You know, advocates, people who have a problem. I always encourage people. You know, have you tried to work it out? And this is really important in tech that you know people have a problem with web accessibility. People don't want to go to a lawyer even a lawyer for structured negotiation. They just want to be able to do what they set out to do right. online with mobile apps. So by the time people come to me, they've already tried typically to get the thing fixed in whatever way. And even though people maybe at the customer service level or the store level are willing, they don't have the buy-in from the higher up. So when we come in, we write a letter, usually to the top lawyer in the company or the government agency, And that's like I have a whole chapter in the book how to write that letter because that's really the first thing that happens to engage the other side. And in law, typically the letters can be very aggressive and do this by this date or else, you know, we'll see in court, that kind of thing. So we're trying to do something different and say, hey, there's a process out there called structured negotiation. You have a problem with your website or your technology or whatever. Let's work in this process so we don't have to go to a different process. Right and do and do, I, I guess since you worked with so many clients, I guess they've they've uh, they've they've done that. But I just I feel like since it's such a new concept, would would the people buckle at first and say like like what are you talking about in terms of structure negotiation? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's like one really good thing about writing the book. So I did this process from you know, since 1995 for 20 years. But writing a book about something is really different than doing the thing because I really wanted to go step by step. Like, how does this work? Because even to me, it's still kind of amazing. We got these, you know, large companies to engage, many of whom are now champions in the accessibility field. And I realized in writing the book is that one of the things is when you get the response to the letter, it's not going to be like, oh, jolly, great. You know, we're so happy you wrote to us. We want to work with you. No, we're going to get a letter back from a lawyer. It's probably going to say we did not do anything that violated the law and we didn't do anything wrong and blah, blah, but we're willing to talk to you. So it's just that little opening, that little tiny opening you need. And you kind of have to ignore the other stuff. People have to sort of say that when you write them a letter on lawyer stationery. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like they want to defend. They're like, you know, 
you know, I guess that little opening is important because, you know, is that important just because, you know, they still need to defend, like, they feel like they, like, we want to make sure we're, we're like, uh, shield ourselves from any lawsuits. We're not going to say we did something wrong, but that whole, like that opening that you just mentioned, it sounds like it's very important to uh, start the, that working relationship. So, and is that, is that usual? I, I found like what they're probably unusual, right? Well, you know, one of the things I'm hoping with the book is that other lawyers and lawyers are starting to do this work, not just I'm not the only one who does it. And I started this with another lawyer, Linda Dardarian, who's a civil rights lawyer. We're not the only lawyers who do this. I'm hoping the book, which I brought here to put into your screen, I'm hoping that people can say, oh, this is a process. Why don't you read the book and see what it is? Because you know, lawyers and plaintiffs in the United States, they have a bad reputation. It's like, oh, you're just suing to get money or you're just suing to give us a bad reputation. So we do have to, at the beginning, explain that, no, this is a real claim mm. and we really want to solve it, but let's solve it in a collaborative way. Yeah. And so what, what type of uh, issues have you, have you run into? Like, you know, we talk about banks with ATMs, they talk about uh, online banking. Uh, you know, are those this... Is just online accessibility the issues like with Major League Baseball, with with Anthem and and CVS? Is it most like online accessibility, or is it also just uh, is it physical spaces as well, like the stadiums or or CVS stores? Uh, well, it you know the process really can be used for anything. When I first, I have just a tiny bit about this in the book, but before I got into representing blind people. I worked at the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund. I did a lot of work with wheelchair riders, and we did a big case against Shell and Chevron in the mid-90s on the accessibility of their stores and their gas pumps and their convenience stores. And we dealt with like 4,000 stations around the country, and we did all that without a lawsuit. It wasn't wow. structured negotiation for various reasons, um, which I get into in the book, but it was done in like a collaborative way. So that was sort of the early taste of it. Once we started calling it structured negotiation, some of the issues we've worked on are accessible pedestrian signals. We did a deal with the city and county of San Francisco that ended up with like a thousand audible signals installed at street corners, point of sale devices, uh, sort of grew out of the ATM work. People used to say, well, I'm not that comfortable with an ATM because I can get my cash at the grocery store. And then in the early 2000s, you may remember, uh, the point-of-sale devices became flat screen. Blind people couldn't enter their PIN. Mm -hmm. We did a bunch of structured negotiation with big companies, Target and CVS and Rite Aid, about the point-of-sale devices. Um, and let's see, we did movie, a case with Cinemark Movie Chain about audio description. All these stories are in the book about how oh. we work with these work with these companies. Oh, nice, very right, cool. And and so, what is typical of the process that you when you enter a structured negotiation? Like like you know, we we, did, we talked about uh, you, you write the letter, which is you know a chapter in your book. And then what usually happens? You know, an example like uh, when the relationship first starts, like you uh, you you know you you know you you to find the problem and find the letter and then you know you probably meet with them to, to you know make sure like they probably want to make sure yeah this is a problem we go from there and so do they and to, do the clients just say like what's the next step i guess after that like after they define a problem like with working with with you in the structure negotiation and yeah we have ground rules after we write the letter and after we get a response we have to agree 
that we're going to be in this process. Mm-hmm. So if you file a court case, you have court rules. We don't have court rules. So we need to have rules about confidentiality, rules about how information will be exchanged, and just a general agreement that everyone knows we're in a process that is a process. It's called structured negotiation. We expect it to result in a binding settlement agreement, you know, we don't know for sure at the beginning if it will, but everyone is working towards that goal. So once we get the ground rules, that's another occasion where it's easy. When I wrote the book, I looked back and said, oh my goodness, all of these cases could have ended up in court had we not been sort of patient and uh, persistent about explaining the process and getting the ground rules. So once we get the ground rules, then the next step is sharing information. And when I speak to lawyers, people say, well, how do you get what you need? And don't they hide the ball? And all I can say is for 20 years and, you know, 75 cases, we've gotten what we needed 99% of the time. Because once you're in a relationship of collaboration and problem solving, there's less opportunities to say no. So people don't say no so much. During this process, I guess you, you know, bring in experts to help the, to help the, the uh, business as well in, in terms of helping them. I guess, understand the problems that they have and, and, and to troubleshoot as well? Yeah. Sometimes we bring in experts. Uh, that's one of probably the most cost efficient. We haven't really talked about that, but this process is a lot less expensive because there's less lawyering, first of all. And also we bring in experts and typically we say, let's have a joint expert. Uh, When I said that Shell and Chevron wasn't really structured negotiation, the main reason was because we had an expert who was really knew everything about architectural access for wheelchair users. And Shell and Chevron had someone who also knew, you know, we didn't agree with them all the time, but they knew knew too. And there was a lot of fighting between, not fighting, but disagreement between those experts and Hmm. this and that. And in structured negotiation, we will say to a company like a bank or someone with a website, we want you to have the best expertise. So here are three consultants that we can recommend to help you. Why don't you choose one of them? And that's sort of another hallmark of the process. No one likes to be told what to do, like you said, in any relationship, right? Not just legal. So we always give a couple of recommendations for an expert. And, you know, sometimes a company will say, well, we want to use this other expert that we haven't heard of. And if they tell us, we evaluate it and say, you know, either that person will be good or if it isn't, we say why. So yeah, we bring in expertise. And another thing is, is that especially in disability rights and accessible technology, disabled people are often the best experts of the solution for whatever the issue is. And so in a lawsuit, plaintiffs who bring the case are typically not trusted for their expertise because they're the ones suing. Like, oh, you're suing, well, we're not gonna listen to you as an expert. It's different in structured negotiations. So, like, for example, when we were building the ATMs, you know, blind people had a lot of input into how it would be most, you know, what the best layout would be. Or when we did accessible pedestrian signals, one of our clients was a real expert on accessible pedestrian signals, and he was blind. And so he could be the claimant, bringing the claim, and he could be the expert. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's great. Yeah, definitely. That, that, you know, that would not happen in a court case like you just mentioned at all. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what type of uh, uh, skills and traits do you think um, are that you bring uh, or that you think uh, someone who's probably listening that we need to have to, to go through and, and manage a structured negotiation? Uh, yeah, that's good. Actually, the last chapter of the book is called the structured negotiation mindset. Mm-hmm. 
and my editor at the American Bar Association, they published the book, although, as I said, the book is not just for lawyers. Um, we agreed that chapter had to be last because if we were writing a book and we expected lawyers to read it and we said that patience was an important trait, we were afraid no one would read past the first <laughs> chapter. So honestly, right. probably one of the most important things about the process uh, like I said, when I look back over 20 years of the cases, I'm like, boy, it was good we were patient. Uh, like we did a case with the credit reporting companies because initially blind people couldn't access their credit reports. And there were three different companies and three different sets of lawyers. And it took a long time even to get the ground rules. But patience, and I call it active patience because it's not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs. It's knowing that, you know what, it's going to take time for a big company to navigate its way internally to figure out who's responsible for this stuff and where does the budget come from and, you know, what are the other factors? So active patients, very important, trust, critical, and there's lots of different stories in the book about how we build trust. Uh, not making assumptions, not assume people, it's kind of like trust, but in law, it's very easy to assume that the other side is trying to like screw you over or hide the ball or pull the wool over your eyes. And, you know, we try to stay away from that equanimity, which, you know, often fails me. But, you know, understanding that when people have a lawyer representing them, sometimes they're going to say things, they might make you mad, but just kind of stay focused, keep your eye on the prize, I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's about relationships. It's definitely like active patience and, and that trust building. Like, um, do you have methods? I, you talked about you know being uh, the verbiage of the letter being one thing about uh, you know that the language being part of the uh, positive language you know po building a positive relationship. What are uh, other things you can think about like in terms of building trust? Because it feels like it, it, like you know active patience <laughs> sounds like it, it trust takes a long time to build up. And so, are there any other tricks or techniques? That, that, a, long, a long time to build up and a very short time to wreck. Yes. You know what I mean? yeah. Um, yeah, I think one of the things is uh, sharing. Well, two things come to mind. One is sharing information. So typically in a litigation, if you have an example of something that the other side did wrong or right, you want to save it for a judge to prove, you know, like a smoking gun. So uh, we worked with American Express on their Braille statements for credit card holders and our client discovered that American Express was offering Braille statements in Canada. So in a lawsuit, you'd kind of save that and say to the judge, you know, look, they're offering them in Canada. So obviously they can do it. So they violated the law. But in our opening letter, we told American Express, you know, you're offering this in Canada. We even sent the vendor's name and phone number <laughs> in the letter just to show like our goal is to solve the problem. Our clients were two blind businessmen. They needed Braille statements. So that's one thing. The other thing, um, so share information honestly and also try to find something nice to say. <laughs> so sounds a little corny, like be nice. But the truth is, is that even though I found in the biggest corporations, there's going to be individual people who are reading the letter, who are responsible for the particular area, and they want to hear something they're doing good because it just sort of softens people. So we're dealing with big companies, Trader Joe's, Safeway, uh, like I said, Target, Walmart, and often there's something good you can say. They have good customer service or the people on the phone are nice or 
like we work with American Cancer Society on their uh, information for blind people, they do a ton of good work in foreign languages. You know, many of these companies have good foreign language departments, especially the healthcare companies. And we're like, yeah, what you're doing for people who don't speak English, you need to think about your blind customers in the same way. Okay. Oh, nice. Cool. So be nice and be 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 nice and be honest. Kind of like I guess the book could have been called I learned everything I needed to know about structure negotiation in kindergarten. Exactly. That's what I was just thinking. It was just like we we've uh, sometimes fail our uh, to remember our kindergarten lessons. So yeah, uh, in, in uh, adulthood. So okay, cool. Yeah, and it seems like these like like and these lessons from kindergarten can apply to uh, to uh, everyday life too, and, and uh, not just structure negotiations. Like you know, trying. Um, and if someone like one of the things we, you know, uh, if if are humans, we do online events. You know, one of the things we always see is that uh, when people learn stuff, you know, from our speakers, like you know, like like great speakers like you. Uh, one of the questions that we always seem to get is like um, from people who, especially, are in biz, big business, businesses or in our in-house agencies. It's like, yeah, I love this, but how can I convince my boss, you know, about this? And so it sounds like. You know, like sharing information and uh, being nice. Something to say nice to your boss would probably could go a long way. But uh, is there any, anything else that you could, uh, for those people who are trying to, like, are internal and trying to uh, change things, uh, you know, up the mountain, if you will? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things we do is we always share, like, I, especially in digital access, so many companies are doing good things and other companies don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So like Major League Baseball, for example, they do a great job in their online work, both in web and mobile. And so, you know, someone's new to us, we say, well, why don't you call Major League Baseball and find out what they're doing, find out about us. Um, the other thing is, I'm a lawyer and I'm operating in a legal environment. So I usually say companies want to do the right thing and we give them the opportunity to do the right thing. And someone called me on that when I, you know, after a talk I gave and say, well, it's not just the right thing. It's, it's the legal thing. It's required. So um, that's one of the reasons I do a lot of speaking on digital accessibility legal update for the tech community just so people can, like I say, put the law in their back pocket and they can go to their higher ups and you know, of the many tools, it's not just the lots, you know, good for business and, you know, accessibility makes things usable for everybody and it's good coding practice. There's a million reasons to do it. But in structured negotiation, the law is one of the motivating, you know, if we didn't have a legal basis, mm -hmm. we wouldn't be resolving legal claims. Right. Yeah, I think that's, that's very, that's very uh, true. I mean, I, I feel like on, from my you know, point looking, you know, I'm not in the, in the legal profession, but just helping trying to uh, you know we put on a lot of events for accessibility and look and uh, being a proponent for accessibility just trying to uh uh look in it just felt like a lot of people uh you know were waiting around for uh you know legal cases to go to court because then that way they can uh use that as justification sometimes it's like hey look look what happened to uh well i'm not gonna say company, company names but like <laughs> xyz right. company name right and like see they they got taken to court and uh they had to you know you know this kind of stuff so i you know, and, and and that is a good justification, you know, for for doing that. But you know, I just feel like you know, it's it's an awesome justification for it because it is legal. But it's also, I I always like Joe Clark's uh, uh, when his book came out, and I forgot what it was the name of the title is for the book. Probably look it up for the show notes. But uh, but I just like 
um, but his point was always like, you want to have more customers. And so making things more accessible just opens up your, your customer base uh, or your potential customer base even even bigger just by uh, you know, making things more accessible. And I think that's, uh, I think that will help us out a lot of, I think, uh, business owners or, or business, you know, uh, stakeholders as well to, to, to do that too. So that's, yeah. Well, the other thing is accessibility really does benefit everyone. Like people mm-hmm. come to my site and, you know, they don't have a disability that affects their use of the internet or they don't have any disability. And they're like, wow, your site's so easy to use. I'm like, yeah, that's accessibility. Yeah. You know, I have good color contrast and, mm-hmm. you know, so many of these things, captions, we've all said, you know, can be used in so many contexts other than by deaf people. It really... um I think the whole web is headed towards universal design so things work for everyone. And as the bosses and decision makers get older, I think they're going to see. Another sort of idea we use in the book that I think can be used by people on teams trying to convince their higher-ups is small steps. Mm -hmm. And as I wrote the book, I realized, wow, so many of these cases were successful because we were willing to take small steps and show appreciation of each step along the way. Mm. So we might've wanted a thousand talking ATMs, but when we got our first 10, we did a press release or we want the whole website done, but we recognize that it's not going to be done overnight. And you know, that gives people the chance to see, wow, yeah, we did this. We feel good about it. We can do more rather than typically in law, you know, you got one judge, if you go that far, which most cases don't saying, you know, do this by this time. It, it makes people feel hemmed in. They don't want to do it. We're trying to create an environment where people want to do, want to do what our clients need them to do. Right. I think uh, also like part of that trust in small steps. I think in your book, you actually said that uh, when something positive does happen uh, to write a press release, not boggled down with uh, legal ease or, or you mentioned even lawyers names, you just say like, this is what happened at uh, you know XYZ company and things are more accessible. And so the company, you know, from what I read from, from what I got from the chapter was like, they were really positive. They were happy because they like positive press, which you know, who doesn't, right? But uh, in fact, it wasn't like, you know, in contrast that with going to court where like a judge would order them to do that and that would be negative press uh, as a constant contrast. And so and, and so by having that, that positive press, I think that would also give them more trust like we mentioned earlier, in that small step to go to another small step and make it, and make it, may make it even make it more more investment in the future. So, yeah, you know, um, to write the book, I interviewed like seventy five people, clients, and company lawyers. And one thing I learned from the company lawyers, which I hadn't realized before, is that the positive press. Many people said that's almost more important than not doing a lawsuit. Because often when people do the lawsuit, they file the press release right at the beginning. And like this, I quote a lawyer in the book is telling me like in their company, if it's a lawsuit, it stays in the legal department. But if it's a press release, it's going up to the, you know, chairperson of the board. So the fact that we do positive press and we're really trying to create an ownership of the accessibility so the companies feel good about it and you know we've just seen that it works too many times for me to just think it was luck i think you know when given the opportunity to do things in this way i think a lot of companies want to do it what are the characteristics that you think have have made you a a good negotiator well you might talk to my grown daughters about that (laughs) i sort of associate kind of parenting teens with my my parenting teens with my development of structured negotiation skill set. Um, 
I'm a much more, uh, I don't know, calm. Now I'm nervous to say anything. (laughs) Your listeners are going to say, but, um, you know, structured negotiation requires a lot of listening and being open to hearing what the other side, I don't like to say other side, everybody's around a table, but, you know, it's not just my clients who need to have their stories heard, but big companies have to have their stories heard too. And there can be reasons like, you know, with the ATMs, volume control is very important whenever there's an audio component. And when the first talking ATMs came out, there was not volume control available. It seems like silly now, but it wasn't a tool that the banks could put on the machines. And the clients had to decide, you know, we're willing to compromise just for a while, you know, not forever, but until that tech now, of course, all the talking ATMs have volume control. And there've been things like that along the way where um, when people can be in a room together and share their stories, I found that solutions can often emerge. And for me, typically, I've always been a civil rights lawyer, represented labor unions, and I always saw myself and continue to see myself as an advocate. But in this process, I learned that you can be an advocate and a peacemaker at the same time. So I've never been a neutral. I've never wanted to be a judge or a mediator or arbitrator. But I have seen the value of trying to bring everybody to the table. And that value isn't like detracted from doesn't detract from being a strong advocate. I feel I can really advocate for clients and be someone who brings people together. So that's probably the biggest thing I've learned. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good uh, stopping point. How how can people uh, find your book? Um, Yeah, the best place to go is uh, my website at lflegal.com forward slash book. And there's information there on how to get it on Amazon and how to get it from the American Bar Association. And if you have a print disability, you can get it from the Bookshare library. So lflegal.com book. And I'm doing a lot of events. I'll be in D.C. on the 29th. So if you want to sign up for my email list, it's lflegal.com forward slash contact. I have a nice form because I have a very accessible WordPress site. So. Okay, awesome. I encourage people to check it out. Cool. And I got the I got the ebook version from the American Bar Association. So that was I was I was like, I need to get it fast in my hands, like, oh before our interview today. So I was just like So yes. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so definitely if you want an ebook version of it, so uh but uh, definitely go to the American Bar Association. They have a they have the EPUB and dot mobi version too. So but cool. Yeah. But thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it too.